In his book, Everyone's Normal Till You Get to Know Them, John Ortberg tells of a young man named John Gilbert. Uh, we have his photo. Could we get that photograph if we've got it? This is John. At age five, John was diagnosed with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, which is a, a progressive genetic debilitating disease. And at age 25, the disease finally claimed his life. Every year, John lost something. One year, he lost his ability to run, so he couldn't play sports with the other kids. Another year, he could no longer walk straight, so all he could do was watch the others play. He lost the ability to do all the outward things that we think of that make us human in some way. Eventually, he lost even his ability to speak. John Gilbert suffered far more than what most of us can ever imagine during those years. Groups of school children would humiliate him because of his condition and because he had to bring a trained dog to school to help him. A bully used to torture him in the lunchroom where there were no teachers keeping watch. No one ever stood up for him. Maybe they were afraid for themselves. Who knows? John wrote this. What a silly species we are. We all need to feel accepted ourselves, but we constantly reject others. John had other moments in his life as well. Once he was invited to a professional sports fundraising auction. And when it began, one item in particular caught John's eye. It was a basketball signed by all of the players of the Sacramento Kings professional team. John so desperately wanted that ball that when it came up for bid, he felt his hand raise in the air, but not having any of the funds to participate, John's mother quickly brought it back down. They watched the bidding go up and up. It rose to an astounding amount compared to the value of the ball itself and especially compared to the other items that were there at the auction. Finally, a man made a bid that no one could possibly match and he won the prize. The man walked to the front and he claimed the basketball. But instead of going back to his seat, the man walked across the room and gently placed it into the thin, small hands of the boy who had desired it so strongly. The man put that ball into hands that would never dribble a ball down a court, never throw to a teammate, never fire it from the foul line, but those hands would cherish it as long as they lived. John writes, it took me a moment to realize what the man had done. I remember hearing gasps all around the room and thunderous applause and weeping eyes. And to this day, I'm amazed. Have you ever been given a gift that you could never have gotten for yourself, he asks. Has anyone ever sacrificed a huge amount for you without getting anything in return except the joy of giving? It's a picture of a young boy suffering terribly, but doing so in grace, with faith in Christ, trusting in the hope of Jesus. It's also a picture of Christ's costly sacrifice for us, purchasing the salvation we needed at such a great cost. And yet it's also a picture of the kind of kingdom 
that Jesus died to create, an upside-down kingdom. We're going to read from Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, as recorded in Luke chapter 6. I'm going to begin in verse 12, because this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them, and he stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you when men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. What do we see here? But an upside-down kingdom. How is the kingdom of Jesus upside down? I'm going to tell you three ways. First, how we do community is turned upside down in what Jesus here says. Look at how the world does community. Throughout human history, people have tended to do community with people just like themselves. Even in first century Palestine, Jews were forbidden to associate closely with Gentiles. Even within Judaism, Essenes self-segregated, retreating out to the desert to separate themselves off from those who were different in their Judaism. Uh, tax collectors and other Roman collaborators and criminals associated with each other and were shunned by everyone else. The Sadduceical priestly class stuck together with their own wealthy, powerful clique of people. Those seeking radical political change, the zealots banded together. Poor farmers and fishermen stuck to their villages and did community with their fellow villagers. People stuck with those who shared their political views, like the zealots or like the Sadducees. Uh, social circles were often tightly bound communities based on shared family connection, 
or shared socioeconomic status or shared political vision or shared racial makeup. You segregated based on how rich you were or what type of work you did or, or based on your race or your politics or, 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 or uh, you were typically surrounded by people just like yourself by choice often. Unless you were wealthy, then you would have poor servants, but you didn't include them in your community. They were, they were staff. They were slaves. Um, things haven't really changed all that much. Even in the United States of America, it's, uh, which is, is known worldwide for being one of the only countries on earth where diversity is widely valued. You know, you look at polls of Western Europe and our, our highly enlightened Western European neighbors tend in public opinion polls to overwhelmingly view diversity as a threat to uh, their culture, you know, the, the, to, you know, the thought of having people from different countries coming and living among them is, is something that they view uh, almost universally as negative because it's a threat to who they are, their national identity. But, but even here, um, you look at polls, you look at Facebook, you look at Twitter, you look at neighborhoods, and people tend to build their community with people just like themselves. We self-segregate. It's how humans instinctively do community. Uh, Dana Boyd, a researcher at New York University, argues that Americans instinctively self-segregate ourselves. And in her article, Why America is Self-Segregating, she argues that we, we do it in order to connect with people that we simply agree with, that we have common interests with, that won't go against our personal ideology. It's just the way humans do community is by segregating. And it was true in first century Palestine, and it's true even here in the United States in the 21st century. But look at this group of apostles that Jesus has chosen to be his leadership team. These are not people who would ever spend time with each other. They wouldn't be in community with each other. They would have nothing in common with each other. They are at opposite ends of political spectrums from each other. You know, what you've got is you've got four fishermen, two of them called sons of thunder, implying they were big personalities that fill up a room. You've got a tax collector, a Roman collaborator, who likely would have been involved in organized crime as well. And then, you know, there's a reason Jesus speaks and the Bible speaks in one breath of tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. Uh, they, they had a reputation. And yet you've also got on the other end of the political spectrum, Simon the Zealot, a political revolutionary. You've got a skeptical guy who later wants clear proof of Jesus' resurrection. And you've got definitely one teenager, the Apostle John. This did not happen in the ancient world. It was an impossible hodgepodge of people who had nothing at all in common except they were chosen by Jesus. And then you see people from Tyre and Sidon showing up. These are, are Gentile cities on the, the Lebanese coast. These are Phoenician cities. So it appears that Jesus is even beginning to draw the interest of Gentiles as well as Jews. For first century Palestine, this event is the beginning of an incredibly diverse community that crossed human barriers of political perspective and socioeconomic status. It crossed lines of division among families. Some came from among the up, upright and others from among the criminal class. 
It would soon cross over racial, national, and religious boundaries. How does the kingdom do this, creating an impossible diversity while the rest of the world self-segregates? It does it by making your relationship to King Jesus the foundational defining relationship of your life so that the thing that is most important to you is the thing that is most important to your siblings in Jesus, not your socioeconomic status, not your political perspective, not your race, not your nationality. Those are all valid, important things. But when Jesus becomes the most important thing in your life, so captivating, so beautiful, so treasured, so foundational, that is what creates a diverse and inclusive human community. You see, every other identity is fragile. If you build your identity on success in your career, then when you lose that, it, your identity will not forgive you. You will be a zero, and it'll crush you and destroy you because every other identity is fragile. If you build it on your relationships, and then you lose that relationship, then you become a zero. If you build it on, on being thought well of by other people and looked up to in the community, and then, and then somebody spreads rumors about you and destroys your reputation, it'll, it'll turn you, it'll destroy you. Because every other human identity is inherently fragile because it can be taken away in this life and by death itself. And yet, once Jesus brings you into his kingdom in saving power by his Holy Spirit, he gives you an identity that is not fragile. An identity as a child of God, a sibling of Jesus, uh, the church uh, as God's family, which then becomes your primary community because it's where the people who share the most important thing are. You no longer need to build your sense of self on your family background or on your race or on your socioeconomic status or your political viewpoint because you have an identity within the kingdom of God that is not going to crush you when you fail but will rather forgive you when you fail. One that is not fragile, that cannot be taken away by poverty or hardship or reputation or illness. An identity that is stronger even than death. An identity that will be forever. That enables a new kind of community. One that's based on King Jesus. In the first century, followers of Jesus were first called Christians in the city of Antioch. Antioch was the capital of the province of Syria. It had been the capital of the Seleucid Empire uh, before that, uh, before the Romans conquered it. And Antioch was a, a cosmopolitan city where, where it was a city of neighborhoods and a city of walls. There wasn't just a wall around the city, but every neighborhood was an ethnic neighborhood with its own wall around it to protect it from each other. There was the Greek neighborhood with the wall around it. There was the Jewish neighborhood with the wall around it. There would have been an Arab neighborhood with a wall around it and an Armenian neighborhood with a wall around it. And, 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 and so you did your business with the people of your own ethnic and national group. And you seldom had reason to go beyond the wall of your neighborhood. But in the first century, something started to happen. There were these groups of people in each of the neighborhoods that started climbing over walls to go meet people from different areas. People didn't know what to call them, but the thing they had in common is they all mentioned Christus or Christ. And so they assumed that must have been the city that they were from, and so they called them the Christians because the Christians were the ones 
crawling over human walls, human barriers, human separations, because they had found a more important and life-giving community in Jesus Christ, a community that brought diverse people together. It's opposite of the world's way of of self-segregating. We see a community here that is turned upside down, and yet we also see what we value being turned upside down within the kingdom of Jesus. Look at what the world values. Jesus, Jesus warns about it right here in this passage. Hear him. He warns about being rich, about having your physical needs provided for, about being able to laugh, perhaps laugh at others, being spoken well of, looked up to, and admired. Those are all good things, well, mostly, but they are dangerous things. Those are things we instinctively aspire to gain. It's what the world values. There are, there are very few parents who don't want, most parents want the same thing for their kids. Uh, I mean, let's just be honest. I've talked to enough parents. I've seen enough parents. Not all of you, but I've, every, almost every parent wants what they want. They want one thing for their kid. They want their kid to get straight A's in school and go to a really nice university and go to grad school and get, and, and, and get a huge career and go to the top of their career and have a huge house and a big family and ever, all their needs taken care of and everything easy and die at the age of 120 with tons of money in the bank. There's not many parents that don't want that one thing for their kids. It's just the way the world does value. But Jesus says, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. And woe to you who are well fed now for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. These are what the world values. Rich, well-fed, satiated with the things of this world, laughing at other people and being spoken well of, uh, which Jesus says makes you like the false prophets. The false prophets were those who adjusted the truth in order to gain popularity. It's a temptation we all face at one point or another. Think of the, these qualities as a composite describing a certain kind of person whose hope and life uh, is bound up in these things. Popularity, wealth, success, personal comfort, an easy life being spoken well of. Jesus cautions us against living for these things because if you gain them, Jesus says, you already have your comfort or reward. Literally, you've already signed the receipt for your goods in the Greek, meaning there will be nothing left for you in eternity. In the coming age, you will go hungry. You will be empty and instead will mourn and weep at the loss of your soul. Now, it's not that rich people can't be saved. We know that from the example of Zacchaeus and the example of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, as well as in the Old Testament, Abraham, David, Solomon, all of them were blessed with wealth, uh, which they put to kingdom use to serve God and God's people. Nor is the mention of laughter a warning against levity uh, in uh, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This term to laugh was tied to laughter that is self-satisfied, boastful, and condescending. It's laughing at other people. Uh, at their failures, unlike you. It's a picture of, of the callous rich gorging themselves on the pleasures of this life, laughing at the expense of others, being loved by the world, often at the expense of the truth, but who, in the end, lose their souls. 
the woes serve as a warning and a call to repentance to those of us who might be tempted to trust too much in wealth and comfort and possessions and how other people view us because that's what the world values. But look at how Jesus contrasts this to the blessing, the blessed calling of the disciple. We read that Jesus was looking at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God right now. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. Realize that Jesus is here contrasting two groups of people. These aren't just isolated ethical tidbits organized in a list. Uh, he's, he's, he's talking about two different sets of people with two different trajectories, two different sets of values, two different experiences. The blessed are compared to the prophets of old and those who are condemned who receive the woe are compared to the false prophets. You have the rich, full laughter being spoken well of in contrast to the poor, the hungry, the weeping and persecuted. The parallelism shows that this is, these verses are, are talking about two different groups of people. The blessed are those whom the world rejects as evil because of the Son of Man. The condemned are those of whom, quote, all men speak well of, end. Jesus divides humanity into two groups based on their relationship to him, to Jesus, the Son of Man, those who follow Jesus and those whom the world praises, on the other hand. Rather than picking each in isolation, let's look at this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Remember that Jesus' audience would have been mostly poor people because most people were poor in antiquity. And the Bible does speak of how God has chosen the poor of this world to shame the rich. But God is here speaking not only of physical neediness, but also and even fundamentally of the spiritual poverty and neediness, our need to have life in God. Uh, commentator Daryl Bach says this. He says, Patokos, the, 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 the Greek word here uh, for the poor, appeared earlier in chapter 4 in the citation of Isaiah 61 and referred to those whom Jesus proclaimed the good news to. And in that meaning setting, the word is not merely a socioeconomic term, but also it has spiritual content as an attachment to the other ideas in the context makes clear. He, he writes, the interpretive history of Isaiah 61 in Judaism also supports this spiritual emphasis. It's also how the term the poor was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was used to translate the Hebrew word ani, which has both socioeconomic and religious connotations that suggest a reference to the pious poor who look to and depend upon God. Therefore, a paraphrase of this beatitude would read, blessed are you materially poor who nonetheless look to God and his promise for the kingdom of God is yours. You see in Matthew's gospel, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
Blessed are those who are spiritually poor, who are spiritually bankrupt, who are morally bankrupt and know they have no righteousness of their own, but can only look to God for mercy to clothe him in the righteousness of Jesus. To those who know themselves bankrupt, Jesus promises a kingdom here and now in the present tense. Similarly, the hunger in the Bible is used of both physical and spiritual hunger, what we need to thrive in God uh, as a component uh, alongside the poor. It, it has this spiritual component as well. Blessed are you who hunger now, Jesus says, for you will be satisfied. God himself will receive you and he will give himself to you and he'll satisfy your hungry soul for it was for him that we were made. But this satisfaction is only partial in this life. That's why Jesus is saying the promise is the future. The kingdom, he says, is yours now, but these other things God will give. If not in this life, then in the age to come. One, uh, one writer talks about the danger of, of what he calls spiritual sugar. He writes, do you remember when your mother used to say, don't eat candy before meals? Why did she say that? Because she knew it would ruin your next meal. The trouble with eating candy is that it gives you a sugar buzz, and then you don't feel hungry anymore. See, candy masks the fact that your body needs proteins and vitamins. The sugar buzz from candy masks your hunger for the real nutrients that your body needs in order to survive. And he continues saying things like sex and money and power and success as well as even just favorable circumstances, act on our souls like spiritual sugar. Christians who have these spiritual candies may say, sure, I believe in God and I know I'm going to heaven. And they may be right, but they're actually basing their day-to-day -day joy on favorable circumstances. And when those circumstances change, it drives us to God. Because when the sugar disappears, when the candy is taken away, we're forced to pursue the feast that our souls really crave will hunger for the spiritual nutrients of God himself that we need. Hunger's not a bad thing. And blessed are those who hunger for God. In this life, poverty and hunger, physical and spiritual, leads to weeping. And yet Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now because you're going to while we plant tears of sorrow in this age, in the coming age, Jesus says, those, those tears will bring a harvest of joy when we see God at the renewal of all things. And in the face of opposition, whether from the world or, as their case would be, from the religious leaders of their day, Jesus again promises a better future. He says, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. These attacks come on account of the Son of Man, we read. That is because of the disciples' relationship to Jesus, their commitment to follow him with all of their life. But when religious leaders despise you and exclude you, Jesus says to rejoice. Jesus is sharing that it's those who know their weakness, who know they aren't self-sufficient, who took no pride in themselves, who, who know their neediness. It is they who are blessed. 
The way up is down. It's an upside-down kingdom. The way to true strength comes through weakness. The way to true riches comes by giving it all away. Everything else is, is a context in which to trust Jesus. An upside-down kingdom where community is turned upside down, where what we value is turned upside down, and yet all of this is only possible because the king and his subjects are turned upside down. Look at how Jesus' power is traveling outward to us. We read that he went around and everybody was, was going to him to, 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 to heal their diseases, and those who were troubled by spirits were cured. People all tried to touch Jesus, we read, because power was coming out from him and healing them all. This is, this is incredible, because we're all sinners. We deserve judgment, not healing, not restoration. But Jesus keeps blessing his people who are unworthy, just like the rest of us. Honor and blessing is something the king's subjects send up to the king. Here the king is sending honor and blessings down to the rebels who have rebelled and disobeyed him and continue to sin against him day after day. It's an upside-down kingdom. The king is becoming the servant. There's all kinds of liberation happening here, physical healing of diseases, and yet more. Luke always distinguishes between physical disease and those experiencing evil spirits. And it's the same thing here. It's as if there's this massive struggle against a force of evil, and Jesus steps up with authority, even over evil forces. He has the power and compassion to deliver these people. And every one of these healings is speaking to what's to come in the coming age when everything will be made right. The, the direction of blessing has been turned upside down. The, the, the righteous judge blessing the criminals. The great and mighty king sending blessings and honor down to us who haven't sent it up to him. And then in the end, look at who ends up saved. It's sinners like us. I haven't loved God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength for 10 seconds. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I've committed the two greatest sins. And yet to us, Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of God. You will be satisfied. Trust me in this. You are going to laugh. This is compassion turns upside down how we think God should relate to the defective and disobedient. Uh, you know, as you, as you picture Jesus looking at you now, I want you to look into his face and see his eyes, because they are eyes that are filled with tenderness. They are eyes that are filled with compassion for you. Remember how far that compassion would drive Jesus. Look at who ends up judged, but the king at the bottom of the pile so that we can reach the top. Remember, Jesus, throughout Luke's gospel, is heading toward Gethsemane, where he will see the cry out to God and yet hear silence, where he will, will bleed tears, where he will experience the Father's silence as the Father turns away from him, as the weight of, of, of sin and shame of all of us is placed upon Jesus as he is stripped and as he is beaten, as he is scourged in his shame, his tortuous death on our behalf in order to take the blame for all of our sin, ultimately it is the Son of Man himself who they would exclude and insult and reject his name as evil for our sake. 
so that we might be included and brought in to an upside-down kingdom where a king takes the lowest place so that we can be exalted, an upside-down kingdom that reverses the world's values and creates a new community built upon Christ. Thomas and his wife Mary Ellen were devout Christians. They had several children, and by the time they were expecting their seventh, the couple was in their 40s, and the chance of birth defects was high, and their son, Josie, was born with Down syndrome, and Thomas loved his son. He demonstrated that love on a fateful day in 2008. One morning, Thomas and Josie were in the yard when Josie fell into a broken septic tank, which at eight feet deep was extremely dangerous. Thomas tried to grab his son, but it was fruitless, and immediately he lowered himself down into the septic tank, and because he couldn't keep Josie's head above the water line, he decided to hold his breath, dive under, and hoist Josie up onto his shoulders to keep him breathing. And by the time rescuers arrived, Thomas had drowned, saving the life of the son he loved. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. He dove in to the septic tank of this world, took on all of our filth, all of our grime, took, it, took our punishment for our sin, and went to the very bottom and gave up his life so that you could live forever. Let's pray.